The latest IPCC report states climate change is responsible for increasingly irreversible losses to ecosystems on land and sea. We're going to have food systems that are less reliable, less stable. We're increasingly at risk of catastrophic challenges to our food production systems. We're losing species at an increasing rate, and the result of that is an accelerating decay of our environments and habitats, which means more and more species loss at a faster rate. Some scientists say we're already in the middle of the sixth mass extinction, the Holocene extinction. Billions of people and animals are already impacted by habitat loss, and if we don't take action on the human activity that's accelerated this, there will be no future for us or our planet. I'm Adley Richmond, and you're listening to Unearthed, Journeys into the Future of Food, from Royal Botanic Gardens, Kew. You've heard the term biodiversity, but have you thought about what it really means? It's one word that captures the whole variety and scope of life on Earth, from habitats and environments, all animals and plants, to insects, marine organisms, the microbes that exist in soil, to us. And everyone plays their part in this interconnected web of survival. So when biodiversity is under threat, those naturally evolved interdependencies are threatened too. Take one keystone species away, systems start to fail, and you lose others too. My name is Aisha Farouk, and I'm the Conservation Partnership Coordinator for the Millennium Seed Bank Partnership. Biodiversity essentially is kind of when you look at a landscape and you've got loads of different species, that is a diversity of components within a landscape. In a context of food security or commodity security, we're utilising more than the world can sustain. The level of consumption basically outweighs the level of production. Biodiversity loss is essentially the reduction or the rate of decrease of that diversity within that particular space. So we're losing species at an alarming rate, essentially, particularly with plants, which is why we're saying that it's now a biodiversity loss, it's now a biodiversity crisis, because that level of kind of the alarmingness of it is being apparent right now. We're seeing a lot of habitat loss, both in the UK, also globally, and climate change is making it worse because when there is a change in climate, it shifts or it changes the type of habitat or the type of environment that these plants and these animals are. It's harder and harder for them to thrive in their current environment. Protecting biodiversity is crucial to our survival. And that's why leaders at the next UN Biodiversity Summit in December 2022, known as COP15, will meet to build a future that's in harmony with nature. So where do plants come into all of this? And what has biodiversity got to do with food? Today, we're going to spend some time at Kew's Wild Botanic Garden in Sussex. Wakehurst is home to some stunning plants and habitats, but also the Millennium Seed Bank. 
This underground treasure trove stores more than 2.4 billion seeds from around the world and is studied by a wealth of brilliant scientists. My name is Dr. Tiziano Liang, and I'm a senior research leader here at the Millennium Seed Bank. So my specialty is about the diversity of plants and fungi for food, but also other useful plants. The Millennium Seed Bank is a special place because it really holds the seeds of over 40,000 plant species around the world. And it's special because it really safeguards these species in the next centuries. So if one species becomes extinct, then there is the security to have the seeds here in the seed bank and regenerate the species in the future. 90% of our plant-based calories come from only 15 species. And as you can imagine, it's very risky to rely on such a, a small number of species. And that's why it's important also to look at the wider diversity there of food plants. You're listening to an excerpt from Mexico Magico a 3D soundscape created by artist Augustine Luda from Wakehurst Water Gardens this summer. He aims to transport the listener to the forests of Mexico, a response to Tiziana's work in collaboration with the Universidad Nacional Autónoma de México to bank the seeds of 300 different tree species here. These forests are used for timber, firewood, and are part of life and culture for the communities. But they also protect the landscape from soil erosion and provide clean water for many. It's hoped work like this will help protect them in the face of deforestation. And although our world's forests and wild habitats are under threat, the secrets they hold could yet help save our food supply from vulnerability. We did a study in 2020 and we compile all the information about known food plants from different databases and we reach 7,000 plant food species. A lot of these species can be semi-domesticated or even some domesticated, but they are being somehow forgotten. In fact, they called forgotten crops. Another big proportion of these species can be just wild species, so they are only collected from the wild. And as you can imagine, if they're collected only from the wild, and we know that we are losing different habitats, there is a high rate of reforestation, so there is really high risk for these wild species to disappear in the wild. The team at the Millennium Seed Bank not only study the species collected around the world, but they actively seek out varieties in their research, and especially the kinds of wild species that could be useful if cultivated sustainably. More than 90% of crop varieties have disappeared from farms around the world in the last 100 years. If you don't use it, there's a risk of losing it. 
further decreasing that essential diversity. At the moment, monocultures pose a huge risk to diversity. This method of intensive farming produces single types of crops but eliminates the variety of plants and animals that can exist in farmed environments and can leave them vulnerable to pests and diseases too. So what can we learn from the way the wild relatives of familiar crops grow that can help make future crops more resilient to change and disease? Aisha explained her work learning from communities and their foods in Georgia and Armenia. We're currently in the garden at Wakehurst, experiencing a bit of a heat wave in the UK, but it's lovely being under the shade of this mighty tree and around us, basically edible plants. We've got apple trees, we've got fig trees, climbing beans and squashes all around us. Wakers horticultural team sometimes have come out with me in fieldwork both to see what the landscape is in terms of where these wild species are grown but also to talk to local communities and local institutions on how to propagate so how to grow some of these species there are really difficult species to that need a lot of treatment and a lot of things doing to them in terms of getting them to germinate and getting them to fruit and flower properly We have a very long-term relationship with our collaborators, the National Botanic Garden in Georgia, the Institute of Botany in Georgia, and also the Institute of Botany and Nature Heritage in Armenia. Most of that is to collect the economically important and endemic wild species of their countries. But more recently, we did a project specifically focused on wild relatives and wild edible plants of fruits and nuts wild apples, wild pears, wild walnuts, wild almonds, those kind of things, which are important to local communities. That whole region is called the Caucasus. So that kind of region, the South Caucasus, is like the birthplace of wild fruit and nut domestication, the hotspots of wild relatives of fruit and nuts. So wild apples, for example, although a lot of apples have been domesticated into the domesticated apples that you and I know there are kind of wild apples that haven't been domesticated or that kind of semi-domesticated almost and local communities still utilize these they make compots out of them so they make them into jams for example but actually they're wild pears as well and there's just loads of different species of wild pears some of them have beautiful trees with long silvery leaves some of the communities actually use them to make spirits so like alcohol so common meddlers you know, it's a, it's a big tree, it's got kind of like a brown, hairy fruit, almost. It's a very strange looking fruit, in my, my opinion, but it's, it's lovely. And what they do is they steep it in syrup and they have it, they preserve it over the winter months. And it's got vitamins in there and things like that. We're essentially just scratching the surface, really, in terms of our knowledge of particularly wild plants and what they're capable of in terms of resistance and resilience. These wild relatives of domesticated fruit and nuts, they're found in a range of different habitats. And some of them, we might think of extreme habitats. For example, there's wild pears that I've seen growing 
up in really high altitudes and growing in essentially like sand, you know, like really dry environments, which is why Georgia, Armenia, that kind of region is so fantastic for these, you know, to do this study because they have such a huge diversity of different habitats and, you know, species as well as essentially a biodiversity hotspot. As our climate starts becoming hotter and drier, it's going to make it more difficult for farmers, you know, orchards to actually be productive. So these wild relatives essentially that can be found grown in such extreme environments could essentially hold a key to helping us adapt in the future. Also in terms of disease, in monocultures for example, you see quite a lot of outbreaks of fungal diseases, outbreaks of pest for example, which sometimes we don't really see in wild relatives whether that's a product of biodiversity you've got you know other species around it protecting it for example or it's a product of their biology so something that they do that makes it so that pests and disease don't like them we don't really know we're just still trying to figure it out so a lot more research needs to be done Around the world, we drink around 2 billion cups of coffee every day. And more than 100 million people rely on this industry for their jobs. But did you know that our favourite type of coffee, coffee arabica, is now officially an endangered species? It's on a list of threatened species known as the IUCN Red List. It sounds scary, doesn't it? Science hasn't named or studied all the species that exist on planet Earth. But of those known species which have been assessed, 28% of them are threatened with extinction. The IUCN Red List was set up in 1964 and since then it's been working to become a barometer of conservation and therefore the health of the world's wildlife. And you may raise an eyebrow to find out that the world's favourite coffee is under threat. But the truth is that the forest habitat this coffee normally grows in is changing rapidly. Pests, deforestation and climate change all mean that soon the wild population could disappear altogether forever. My name is Dr. Erin Davis and I am Senior Research Leader of Crops and Global Change at the Royal Botanic Gardens Kew in London. We are sitting in my office in the herbarium, but I also do a lot of work across Africa and Madagascar. Like many crops, coffee is being badly affected by climate change. We consume two species of coffee, Arabica coffee, which is the coffee we love to drink that has the great taste, and Robusta coffee, which is either added to Arabica for espresso blends or is used in instant coffees. Those two species have served us very well for at least the last 100 years, but their future is now in jeopardy because of increasing temperatures and unpredictable weather patterns. So here at Kew, we do work on both the wild plants and the cultivated plants, the crop plants that we use on a daily basis. For coffee, what we're seeing is not only the wild plants in danger, not just by climate change, but by deforestation, etc. So there are some serious extinction risks for wild coffees. 
But we're also interested in cultivated coffee, the coffee, of course, that we consume as coffee drinkers. The bottom line is that if we continue to emit greenhouse gases at the rate that we are currently doing so, within the next 20 or 30 years, the ability to farm coffee worldwide will substantially decrease. If we look back at the history of coffee cultivation over, say, the last 400 years, what we see is that we've used different species for coffee farming. And those species, of course, have come from wild forests, particularly in, in Africa. The use of those species has, has actually enabled the sustainability of the coffee sector over those 400 years. And not only that, it's, what we see is that we've gone back to wild populations, to wild genetic diversity, to find solutions to farming issues, plants that have resistance to the major diseases and some of the major pests of coffee. What we're doing here at Kew and with our collaborators across Africa is finding alternative species that can cope with higher temperatures and perhaps much lower rainfall. One day in 2018, Kew's Dr. Aaron Davis and colleagues from the University of Greenwich came upon a species not seen in the wild for more than 50 years. They'd made a special trip to the highlands of Sierra Leone that December just to seek out a specimen of Cofea stenophylla, the highland coffee of Sierra Leone, thought extinct in the wild. We would probably not have found stenophylla in Sierra Leone if we'd have waited another 10 years. The rate of deforestation, the additional danger climate change poses for extinction it should not be underestimated you know it's those factors working together that make this this so urgent but there is hope yet for wild coffee so we have two candidates and two species that we're particularly interested in one is the highland coffee of sierra leone the latin name is coffea stenophylla and liberica coffee coffea liberica let me just give you a little bit of background on stenophylla coffee or the highland coffee of Sierra Leone. This is a really compelling species because it was cultivated at scale and exported to Europe during the end of the 19th century and into the early 20th centuries. It was noted for having an amazing flavour and there are some reports that stated that it, it tasted better than Arabica. So for somebody like me that's immediately interesting. But there's another important fact, and that is it comes from much, much warmer conditions than Arabica coffee. The problem was that we couldn't actually find this species in Sierra Leone. None of the farmers we, we spoke to had, had heard of it or had grown it. We did a big survey across Sierra Leone, and there was nobody growing it. So what we decided to do was to go back to those wild places where it was collected initially for producing the, the crop plant itself. There's been a, an awful lot of deforestation in Upper West Africa, including Sierra Leone. And when we went back to some of the original forests, we simply couldn't find it. So we came back to Kew, looked through the herbarium, looked through the specimens to find all the localities that it had been collected before, where we knew there was still forest. We went to one of those places and indeed we, we found Stenophylla, um, it's the first time it had been seen there since 1954. We only found one plant, which was quite worrying. 
But in subsequent trips, we've found quite extensive populations. And what we've been able to do is to, in collaboration with our colleagues in Sierra Leone, is to bring that into cultivation. There are now several thousand plants being grown in Sierra Leone, and we're running what we call uh, farm trials or field trials to see how easy it or difficult it is to grow, what the productivity is like, etc. In 2020, we were able to get some material to taste. We had professional tasters working with us on this, and the taste is rather wonderful. Stenophila coffee is able to produce an Arabica-like taste, i.e. high-quality coffee, six to almost seven degrees Celsius warmer than Arabica coffee. Stenophila isn't used as a crop, but research shows it could have more drought and heat-tolerant properties than the other varieties we consume, making it a useful plant for cultivation. Yet this coffee is threatened by deforestation in its native habitat. We don't know whether we can substitute Arabica with Stenophila. We still have to do a lot more research need to understand its climate requirements in, in much finer detail. But what we're seeing is farmers, producers are coming to us asking for Stenophila because Arabica is failing and they want to replace Arabica with another high value crop. What we see is that every year we're publishing around 2,000 new species of flowering plants, of which CUSA does about 10%. That really begs the question, are we losing key plant species, key diversity before we even know it exists. And I think that is possibly the case. So there are two ways of looking at extinction. Extinction in the wild and extinction in cultivation. Conserving one or two plants in a botanic garden or in a germplasm collection isn't giving you very much in terms of useful resources because the genetic diversity of those few plants is so low that trying to incorporate that, for example, into a crop breeding program would leave you in a very limited position. Ultimately, what you want to do is to preserve a lot of living plants, a lot of populations in the wild. Because what is really important is what we call standing variation. Evolutionary forces or other external forces such as climate change act on that standing diversity. For example, there may be some plants across those populations that are able to withstand slightly warmer temperatures or slightly drier conditions Selection acts on that and provides you perhaps with fitter plants than you would have in cultivation. So we see Stenophila coffee as a longer term option in terms of global crop plant. In the short term, it'll be you know used to produce niche coffee, high value coffee. But what we're looking at as well is a species that occurs in Central and East Africa. It's a type of Liberica coffee. And farmers have taken plants from the wild and are planting this type of Liberica in preference to Robusta coffee. And it seems to be working very, very well. It's highly productive. It appears to be very resistant to certain pernicious diseases of coffee and some of the major pests. We are doing extensive field trials. But the indications with the coffee that we're already starting to import is that the flavor is good. It's, it's, it produces a, 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 a mild, pleasant drinking coffee, quite fruity, quite chocolatey, um, which we hope will appeal to consumers. 
The coffee sector has gone back to the wild to uh, use wild genetic resources of coffee to sustain the industry, particularly for things like disease resistance. Going forward, and particularly under climate change, we will be requiring those resources on a more frequent basis. All of those resources, those wild resources, are under threat. When we did an analysis in 2019, what we found is that of those 130 wild coffee species, over 60% were threatened with extinction. Now, as we lose each species, we lose a potential option. So it's really important that we conserve not only the species, but the habitats where they come from. So we're preserving the maximum amount of genetic diversity. This is the same argument across the board for all crop species or all the species that we use. Hugh's been working in seed banking since the 1960s, 70s. We had a seed physiology department and they were actually the first science department to move from Kew in London to this site at Wakehurst where the Millennium Seed Bank is based. But back then, it was quite a small team. They actually moved all their equipment in the back of an estate car, which we're now in a state-of-the-art building. There's no way you'd be moving us anywhere. My name's Eleanor Bremen, and I'm a senior research leader in seed conservation here at Kew's Millennium Seed Bank. I've got a team of about 20 people working with me, and we work all around the world. I have coordinators for each region, the UK, Africa, Asia, Americas, Europe, Oceania, and we have partners in all of those areas, and it's really them who are out collecting the seeds for us, and then they keep part of that collection in country, and they send part of it here for safe storage at the seed bank. The reason that we need to conserve seeds is because unfortunately two in five plants are currently threatened with extinction. So while we do our best to protect them where they grow, we need that ultimate insurance policy and to take those seeds out of their environment and store them here. That gives us future options on restoring those plants and using the information that is held within those seeds. So we're currently standing on a glass bridge which is within the Millennium Seed Bank and we're looking out at the visitor space which is where the public can come and learn about the work that we do and we have a lot of labs leading off that visitor space and you can see into all of the labs because all the glass windows face into that visitor space and you can really track the journey of a seed as it comes into our building, it's dried, it's cleaned, it's weighed, it has germination tests done and then it goes down into our seed vault which I can see it's down below the ground level and we're going to go down and explore that later. We're just in the seed cleaning lab at the Millennium Seed Bank at the moment and Chris, my colleague, is about to put some seeds that we collected the other week that have dried now into an aspirator, which is basically like a hopper. It, you put seed in at the top and then it separates out by airflow and weight. Um, so he's going to put in some seeds from bluebells, actually, that we collected and I think that, that you'll hear them going into the chute now. It's kind of like they've gone down a helter-skelter. <laughs> so now we're going to head down into the seed vault. We're going down a spiral staircase. So we're just at the vault door now and I've got the keys and I'm just unlocking 
this big bank vault door. It's very heavy and you have to just swing that one back and then we actually have an electronic pass point as well that you'll hear beeping. And then another heavy door into an airlock. And the reason that we have an airlock here is because we're about to enter a dry room. So it's much cooler down here. We're underground, but we actually hold this next room at 15% relative humidity. So that's the dryness and 18 degrees centigrade. So you'll feel that change as we come through this second door. Now this is actually quite a large space underground and what I love about this building, it was purpose built to last for 500 years. So we're just looking through a window here into one of those cold rooms and there's some mobile racking shelves and on those shelves are lots of glass containers which contain our actual seed collections. And the reason that they're in those glass containers is because once we've dried them down, we want to keep that relative humidity really low. That's what's helping preserve the seeds as well as the cold temperature. And so they're actually in double glass containers in case the seed on one container was a 40, the other glass container will still maintain that low humidity environment within the cold room. So there's some charts on the wall which would show the colour change that you would find if there was moisture entering and then we'll take out those collections, re-dry them in this dry room and then bank them again, check that they're still okay. You have to try and recreate the environmental conditions that that seed would have experienced when it was germinating so we're looking up the climate from a particular region whether it needed to go through a cold spell over winter say which means a, a spell in the fridge here or whether some of them have smoke signals in order to start germinating from some fire prone ecologies so then we have to add chemicals to mimic the smoke signal which would start germination some of them have very thick seed coats and we actually need to physically chip the seed coat with a scalpel to make a little hole to let the water get in that might you know mimic passing through an animal's gut so all of these things are happening in our labs upstairs because we really need to know how to turn these seeds back into plants and there's two reasons for that the first is to understand the viability of those collections so how well are they doing in cold storage and the other reason is that as I said most of these things have never been collected before so we don't know how to turn these seeds back into plants here at the Millennium Seed Bank, we're storing wild plants from all over the world and we currently have 40,000 species stored in these seed vaults which are surrounding us at the moment. So you could say that we're currently standing in one of the most biodiverse places on the planet just for the sheer diversity that is surrounding us. These seeds come in all shapes and sizes from the tiniest little micro orchid seeds up to quite large, something maybe up to the size of a cherry. So we have a number of different projects that bring the seeds into the seed bank and we tend to focus on plants which are either endangered, threatened in the wild, that they're rare or endemic, so they're only found in a certain place and they're likely to become threatened if something happened to that habitat and also on useful plants, and that, that's in its broadest sense, so it could be of any use to humanity, whether that's a medicinal plant, whether that's something that offers a nature-based solution, or one project which we ran for 10 years was looking at the wild relatives of some of our crop varieties. So we looked at the crop wild relatives of 26 really key crops, including things like beans, rice, also some fodder plants, and then we went out and we discovered what the wild relatives of those plants are and where they existed in the world. And the reason that we did this is because our traditional crops have been bred over millennia. And that process actually takes out some of the diversity within 
the crop and it makes them very well adapted to their current conditions but not adapted to environmental change and especially not the current change we're seeing with climate change. So the idea with collecting these wild relatives, they're plants that are currently surviving in these different extreme habitats and some of them have salinity tolerance, some of them have drought tolerance, some of them have pest and disease tolerance. And by screening these plants, you can understand the genetic basis for this and then use that to breed crops that are resilient to climate change. It's not necessarily GM crops, it depends on the breeding method that's used. So you could use that information for GM or you could use traditional breeding. It just depends on the organisation. We need to make sure though that we're following all of the national, international, global regulations in relation to handling plant materials. So with all of our partners, we would enter into access and benefit sharing agreements, which would say what we can and cannot do with those collections once they've been made. So can Q use them for research? Can third parties use them for research? At what point does prior informed consent come in? And all of these things, because it's an amazing resource, the the seeds that we're holding here, that people can request to utilise and so we need to make sure that if any, there's any benefits arising from those uses, that those are fed back to our partners and to the country of origin. Resilience is a word you'll hear lots of in this series. Making sure we can learn from the adaptation of wild plants and identify varieties of crop that can withstand our changing climate is essential in making sure we have enough nutritious food for our world's booming population. It's great that scientists are collecting and storing wild species for safekeeping and seeking to learn from the seeds and specimens collected, as well as the local cultures who hold expertise in cultivating them. But what can we change to prevent wild populations disappearing in the first place? Well, The answer lies in rethinking our relationship with growing foods and crops altogether. And here's where I'm going to remind you why we need to look at human history to understand what we're doing to plants. Part of the global legacy of colonisation has been to spread homogenised food systems that have contributed to the creation of vulnerable monocultures, unsustainable practices and an international crisis in biodiversity. Now, conservation and agriculture are more focused on acknowledging the importance of rural livelihoods, indigenous traditions and practices. By finally listening to the voices of different communities, we can learn from how they coexist with their environments and draw on past practices to help save our futures. I'm Dan Saladino. I'm a food journalist. One of the main drivers over the centuries of the loss of diversity in our food has been colonisation. And wherever you look in the world, say in Australia or in the Americas or Africa, there are indigenous traditional food systems based around huge amounts of diversity that have been lost and replaced in many cases with monocultures. The first farmers who were in the Fertile Crescent 
around 10, 12,000 years ago. So that's around Syria, Jordan, Iraq, southeastern Turkey. As hunter-gatherers, they started to select particular seeds of wheat, of barley, of chickpeas, and created settlements based around these food groups. But when we get to the 19th century and the arrival of the crop sciences, crop breeding becomes more scientific. By the beginning of the 20th century, the word genetics has been coined. And the first area in which that is being deployed is crop breeding. So we start to see the selection of fewer and fewer plants selected because they are high yielding, more productive, perhaps more disease resistant. What it represents is greater control of humans over nature. The focus on yield in the 20th century takes us down a path of greater uniformity. And we see the disappearance in many communities of traditional farming systems and also traditional diets. I'm Dr. Kasper Chater. I'm a research leader in the Crops and Global Change team here at the Royal Botanic Gardens Kew. I work in the Jodrell Laboratory, but I've got projects all over the world, mainly in Mexico, where I work with lots of collaborators on, on projects with beans and soybean and improving them for drought resilience and climate change. We've got a dire situation, unfortunately, where we have invested a lot in a very small number of crop species over the last hundred years. Those crop species have done us very well you know we've, we've been able to feed many many more people because of that but the way we've done it and our reliance on fossil fuels for fertilizers to push those high yields has made it incredibly unsustainable and at the cost of vast areas of natural habitat we need to diversify diversify our diets diversify the way we grow and diversify what we grow so when it comes to diversifying our diets if we reduce our reliance on meats well we grow plants mainly to feed livestock so by reducing our reliance on meat maybe having a vegetarian day here or there or becoming completely vegetarian then we are doing a massive beneficial step towards reducing that land footprint because we're really growing a lot of cattle food not human food there will be lots of opportunities through this new system of agriculture. If we carry on as you know, business as usual, using the same crops that we have done for the last few decades and growing in the same way with this you know, increasing footprint and in increasing impact, negative impact on plant diversity, life on Earth, <laughs> then the human race is, uh, is in peril. We can't carry on like this. We don't have the resources in the ground. There's not enough potassium, phosphorus in the ground for us to keep having these high yields and we need to get it from somewhere. So we do need to change our food systems. And it's not just our recent agricultural practices and eating habits that need a makeover. Right now, half a million insects are threatened with extinction and they are innately linked to growing healthy crops. Professor Phil Stevenson explains why research into pollinators is also a part of Q's mission. 
So when people think of bees, they often think of the honeybee, but of course there are many species of bees, 20,000 species globally. In the UK, there are something like 275 different species. And in fact, in Kew Gardens alone, we have over 100 species of bees that we've recorded. But it isn't just bees that pollinate. In fact, we think there are in excess of 100,000 different species of insects alone that are important pollinators. And of course, that's many more than there are bee species. And we need to be mindful of how we maintain landscapes to support all of these other pollinators. And this might include moths, butterflies, even hoverflies, which are often mistaken for wasps, but aren't. I'm interested in pollinators because they provide a critical service for food systems. 75% of our crops rely on pollination to some extent. But actually all of our natural ecosystems rely on pollinators. And it's not just about food that we're interested in here at Kew. Conservation is not just about food production, it's about all natural systems. So about 90% of plants rely on pollinators. And so understanding how we can optimise pollination services, not just for food, but also for natural ecosystems, is critically important. They are at risk of decline through intensification of farming systems. That includes the use of pesticides, but it also includes the removal of hedgerows, the reduction of field margin plants, changes to the landscape, diseases, and also a limit on the nutritional availability in what remains. What we're trying to do here at Kew is to better understand the nutritional diversity of species so that we can actually put together seed mixes that really are what the bees need in the right location at the right time. If we can increase the diversity of flowering plants around our farmlands, that will increase the availability of nutrients for pollinating species and maintain those populations in those landscapes so they can continue to provide pollination services. We cannot rely solely on honeybees to provide pollination services because honeybees don't like everything and we need other species of bees and we need to make sure that our landscapes support all of those species. Climate change requires us to look for more resilient varieties of crop and fast. But whilst plenty of innovation is going on to reverse climate change itself, we also need to find solutions to feed our world and protect species in the short term. We need to stop harmful and unsustainable deforestation of habitats where species we do not yet know of may be becoming extinct. But in our food production, we must also rethink the diversity of the crops we grow and the habitats that these can support. We have to think about all the interconnected species that enrich and enhance the health of these ecosystems we create, from pollinators to trees and animals. We must look at how we can make more nutritional and resilient choices in agriculture and seek to understand the potential of crop wild relatives. But first, we must protect them if we are to learn from them. And if there are insights to be gained from world communities, how can we value that knowledge and expertise so that they too can benefit from world-changing insights into food production? We must consider the health of our soils, fungal matter and microbiome. In the next episode of Unearthed, 
popular culture is bringing these enormous global issues down to earth. She's looking more closely at how agriculture and livelihoods hold the key to a better food future for all. I'm Adley Richmond. You can follow this podcast on your favourite app. Thank you for listening.